It's Monday, October 2nd, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 133 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another episode of Talk Between Myself and Another Musician. Today, that musician is trumpet firebrand Jamie Branch. Jamie Breezy Branch, as she's also known. She's a great one, and I think today's conversation is pretty good. Jamie Branch is on the show. Before we get into that, uh, I just want to remind you, uh, as annoyingly as I tend to do, that if you're enjoying this show, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to it in iTunes. That helps. Uh, and, And also, word of mouth helps. Let people know. Do you have friends that like podcasts and who also like fucked up music? Say, hey, I've got a podcast you can check out, and um, there's a lot of people on it who make fucked up and beautiful music. It's called the 5049 Podcast. Do that. It helps. Also, check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash 5049podcast. There's a lot of projects coming up um, through 5049, a lot of recording projects, and uh, every little bit helps. So that's that. Uh, I'll, I'll stop there. Today on the show, Jamie Branch. Um, I've been wanting to get Jamie on the show for a while for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which um, is that I first met Jamie, I want to say two, two and a half years ago at um, a Christmas party. And I had heard of her uh, for a little while. I certainly had an awareness of who Jamie was. Uh, and then when I encountered her at this Christmas party, she was fucking hilarious. Uh, just very quickly, we were having a very funny conversation. And uh, ever since then, every time I've run into her, it's, it's a treat because uh, Jamie makes me laugh. Um, but more than that, she's a great musician. I got to play with Jamie, uh, I think, last May at sort of an ad hoc um, quartet improvising gig, and it was great. Another reason I've been wanting to have Jamie on the show is uh, despite the fact that she's been around in Chicago and now more recently in New York for the last couple of years, uh, and despite the fact that she's been very active as a player and also very active as, um, as an organizer, someone who books series, sets up gigs, um, and really kind of spreads herself out in that way, uh, she only recently released her first record, and it's a special one. It's called Fly or Die. The, the little music that you heard up front uh, is from that record. And when I say it's special, uh, I'm going to try and say this without sounding condescending or insulting towards anyone. The music's really great, and it's a very unique and thoughtful production. And that is something I wish was happening much more in jazz and improvised music. Uh, with this record, Fly or Die, Jamie's done a wonderful job of letting the sound of the record, the mix, the production, tell a story. Um, it adds another dimension to the music. Certainly, it's something I try to do with, with the records that I release. Um, it's just, it, it was very refreshing to hear. The, mu- the music's great. The musicians on the record, uh, Tamika Reed, Jason Ajemian, and Chad Taylor are awesome, and they all sound amazing, um, and it's just a really unique and singular record. Fly or die. And, and I'll just say again, you know, since Jamie got to New York, um, I think about two years ago, she, she's been making a splash. She's staying very busy. She she's out in the streets playing gigs several times a week, um, and and she's someone who I I believe pretty firmly that you're going to be hearing a lot of in the coming years. Um, she's she's kind of on fire right now, and it's great to see. If you want to find out more about Jamie, go to jamiebranch.com. That's J A I M I E. B-R-A-N-C-H.com, jamiebranch.com. Check her out. Um, she's got a lot of good stuff coming up, and she's just a very cool person. And that's it. Um, I hope you guys are all doing well. I'm going to say right now, uh, so, uh, there's not going to be an episode next week. Uh, this, this week's a little hectic for me. I've got a lot going on. So we'll talk to you in two weeks. 
Here's my conversation with Jamie Branch. I mean, purebred dogs, like especially like that, they're inbred. Right. I mean, he, you know, and he's he's a strange dog. Pearl <laughs> is a little more street, you know. She's a little more f- like um, mutts are always better. Did you grow up with dogs? Uh, yeah, we had a Springer Spaniel when I was a kid named Freckles. Um, Springer Spaniel. Which one is that? Uh, it's a spotted like. Um, it's an English Springer Spaniel. So. Okay. Let me put this a little closer to you. Yeah. Sit back and like yeah, kick yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, sorry. And relax here. Not do mics weird you out? Nah. No. I like microphones. Um, wait, wait, I can't picture a Springer Spaniel though. A Springer Spaniel is like, um, they have long ears mm-hmm. and they have a crop tail usually because their tails historically get like People tail cut disease. Them off. Yeah, I don't know if it's like they say it's because they get diseases in their tail, but I think it's also like a look thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People do weird shit to dogs for that reason. <sighs> it's so sad. Um, no, but freckles, uh, so they're like, liver, she was like liver and white, which is like a dark brown mm-hmm. and white color. Yeah. Um, she had spots, right? I, I named her freckles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was four. Come on, give me a break. I feel bad for people that don't grow up with dogs. Or, I mean, um, with, yeah, with dogs. Well, like, yeah, it's it's interesting. My mom hated cats. I hate cats. Yeah, like, I, so I grew up as a hat, a cat, a hat, I'm actually not a hat. Hater, I'm a hat <laughs> I know you. I'm a hat bad. lover. My bad, but um, I'm, I like grew up a cat hater, and I kind of had to like get over it. And I fucking hate it. Yeah, I hate them. Like I always <laughs> I had one growing up that I thought was all right. Yeah. Um, but I've always been allergic to them. Right. And I don't really like their attitude. I don't obviously like the way they make me feel. But then, did you ever read a bunch of William Burroughs? Sure. He talks in a few books about like cats being kind of like demonic creatures right. yeah. that are here yeah, to yeah, suck yeah. your life force. Um. I feel like uh, Bulgakov had that cat too in Master and Margarita, right? Wasn't that cat Satan or whatever? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't fucking like him at all. Yeah. Like, they're weird guys. There's one cat next to my work uh-huh. uh, that I call Gato. Uh-huh. Um, and um, he's a great cat. I think it's a he. You can't yeah. tell either with cats. You can't right. tell. Um, but it's just like a street cat? He's a family cat that lives on the street because he's like super nice. Yeah. And like uh, he lives in that building. I'm. Um, positive. But you live in uh, Red Hook. In Red Hook, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I work in Red Hook too. Have you been in Red Hook the whole time that you moved to New York? Yeah, yeah. I was here for like two or three weeks, floundering for a place. You know, like um, couch surfing. Couch surfing. Um, it's kind of a, a funny story. I was at a, a Jimmy Jason the Jimmy's house, the palace apartment. Sorry. Right. And. Uh, I was down the block from where my mom, my mom grew up in Bay Ridge, which is now. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's real Brooklyn. That's real, <laughs> it's real Brooklyn, uh, especially the Colombian immigrants in like the 50s. Your mom's from Colombia? My mom's from Colombia, yeah. Um, she was born here. Her uh-huh. sisters were born in Colombia. She's the youngest of three. Okay. Um, and her family's Colombian um, by way of maybe Lebanon on one side. Really? Yeah. Your mom's half Colombian, half Lebanese, or she's Colombian, but like further back, yeah. like a couple generations back. Okay, so I don't know like how that calculates, but <laughs> Colombia's uh, <laughs> okay. So, but she grew up in Brooklyn. She grew up in Brooklyn, and they moved out to the island at some point in her childhood. The island of Long. The island of Long. Yeah. Yes, which is where I was born. Actually, really? <laughs> uh, my dad grew up in Yonkers, so it's kind of like an interesting little yeah, New yeah, York yeah, 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 love story. Um, but you're from Chicago. I moved there when I was nine, yeah. From I'm, Long Island. From Long Island, yeah. Those are two very real places. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> Long Island, I mean, they're places with a lot of character. Uh-huh, both, and characters. <laughs> and characters, There's yeah. a lot of weirdos in both those places. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Where Long Island was it? Um, Huntington? Yeah. Yeah. Is that, that's, is that where Coltrane lived? He lived in Dix Hills, but is that in Huntington? Uh, Dix Hills is like a town or two over from Huntington. Okay. Yeah. 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 I feel like all of Long Island, except for the Hamptons, is just sort of like working class. Yeah, I mean, uh, it definitely, it definitely has like super rich pockets too. Like yeah. All over the place. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I think Huntington was kind of a mix 
you know, I was pretty young um, when I was there, but seemed like a bu- whole bunch of different people. And we actually moved to the sub, the north suburbs of Chicago, which is very white. Brand. Very white. Super Why white. Why did your parents want to go to Chicago? My dad got a job. He was like out of work for a year before uh-huh. and got a, a gig in Chicago. Um, Doing what? He was a, a engineer. Is he still around? Uh, he passed this past February. Okay. Um, he was a mechanical engineer. Uh-huh. And so he worked on a bunch of different um, nuclear plants, like building them and then at really? a certain point taking them apart. Um, so he would live like different places a lot. Mm-hmm. Like he lived wherever he was working. So like he moved to Chicago for a firm, but like lived in El Salvador and China and hmm. like all these wild places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, while we were in the freaking white it, suburbs. Did you did the whiteness <laughs> of those suburbs bug you out immediately or only like in hindsight? Uh it bugged me out immediately just because like um they are also like pretty like elitist and like very kinda insular. Yeah. And uh you know, my mom set me up with like a bunch of diet right the first weekend we were there and was like sell soda on the on the corner what? you know yeah wait what do you mean uh like she went to like the store and bought like a case of like you know diet right has like those weird flavors like like diet grapefruit right uh, or whatever yeah, just, yeah, just cheap like cheap cans of soda cheap cans of soda and she was like this is how you're gonna meet friends you're gonna sell soda she wait that the idea was to make friends or make money the idea was to make friends. But then shouldn't you be giving it away? <sighs> I don't know what her thinking was, man. But all I knew is that, like, I was in this fancy suburb all of a sudden, and I was on the corner selling soda. Cheap sodas, right. Yeah, it was... How'd that go? It didn't go great, but I immediately found the kids that were more on the fringe. So that was cool. At age nine? At age nine. And I mean, you know, fringe being, like, just not the super fancy kids, you know? Right. <laughs> they, they detected that that early. I Oh, yeah. That was super ingrained in that culture, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the a bunch of those towns had weird, you know, um, you know, they were super racist, mm-hmm. and then they were uh, anti-Semitic. I mean, not really anymore, but at the same time, there was, like, one town that was, like, most of the Jewish kids lived in Glencoe, mm-hmm. right? Or Highland Park. Mm-hmm. And that was because that's the way that those... That's how those you communities know, work. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's how it and, is down here. I don't know if you noticed on the walk over here, there's <laughs> quite a few Orthodox Jews over where I live. Yeah. And, like, also, I actually liked in the building where it was, like, sitting Shiva. It, yeah, you know, there's Baba. a lot of those. You know, it's like, is it weird for you? Not anymore. I mean, the day that I moved into this apartment, um, a woman who lived, like, two floors up was moving out, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Like, I yeah, <laughs> was in the elevator with the stretcher as they Whoa. were... And because a lot of people in these co-ops have been here since the beginning, there's a lot of elderly people. Sure. So there's two or three deaths a week. Wow. It's a little weird. It must be weird. And then also the culture of like NYC real estate where you just have people pouncing on the apartments probably. like Yeah. Well, I, now that... I get like pretty frequently people slip stuff under my door about like if you're ever thinking about selling your place, like, oh. you know, please call me. Yeah. It's creepy. It's really creepy. It kind of makes you feel like like someone's trying to poach you or something they're trying to poach your place well yeah exactly but i'm, I'm sure they would like it they're but, like but why don't you come over for a drink i promise there's ugh, no poison animals. like i i guess when i think about it like age eight or nine is when i remember kids sort of becoming mean sure yeah like i you know and i i, I noticed that because they were being mean to me <laughs> yeah right yeah sure yeah but that was yeah that was around <laughs> the time when they began to sort of like click up right totally yeah. Click up and there's like, you know. And if you're a new kid, like you're already out of the picture. You're already out of the picture a bit. Um, it was also the year I started playing trumpet though. So I think it worked out, you know. Who, why did you start playing trumpet? Just because So, school? okay. My brother, I have two older brothers. Mm-hmm. They're half brothers, 10 and 15 years older. Oh, that's quite a lot older. It's quite a lot older. So the 15 year old brother, like the guy, he was gone already by the time I was a little kid. But my other brother... I, like, wanted to do everything that mm. he did. I really wanted to play ice hockey. It didn't work out. Um, <laughs> I really wanted to play the piano. Mm-hmm. He played the piano. So I started playing the piano super young. Um, I wanted to play the electric bass, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and when I was a kid in Huntington, we would see, like, the junior high school ban- uh, band and orchestra play. And I was like, oh, I'm going to play the bass. I'm so excited the electric to play bass, the bass. Yeah. I want to play the upright bass. Uh-huh. I want to play the big bass. But we moved, and they didn't have an orchestra. They only had a band. Um, so I had to, like, figure that out. Um, 
And I remember they like give you a sheet, right? Like, what instrument do you want to play? Yeah, you a, B, up, right? C. I'm like, whatever. And I was deciding between trumpet and saxophone. We went out to dinner as a family to Dave's Italian Kitchen. It's like <laughs> awesome place. It Cut is place. that out. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anyways, we went out to dinner as a family of four, me and my little sister and my parents, and uh, I spilled my dad's wine all over the saxophone sheet and, like, all over my dad. And I remember he was, like, wearing this white shirt. And I got in so much trouble, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm playing the trumpet, like, trumpet. Um, right. But it turns out that my dad played the trumpet, and both my brothers played the trumpet. And you didn't know that? I didn't know that. I mean, like... They are playing jazz? No. More just, like, concert band stuff. Right. Um, I don't know what it was like. My dad was little. It was like... <laughs> Yeah, um, but uh, but yeah. So there's this like history of trumpet playing that yeah. I didn't even know about. Is um, your dad also? He's not Colombian. No, he's white. He's, <laughs> he's white. <laughs> he's just he's white. Like, yeah. yeah, they're like he's like I don't know Scottish. White English, people like the trumpet. German. Yeah, it's a I war mean, instrument. It's a war instrument, and like they have great brass bands over. It. I mean, my brother ended up being a euphonium player. Uh huh. And you can't really do that professionally in the States. There's like, Hulse the Planets has like a euphonium solo, but it's not an instrument that we have here, right. like our orchestras. And so he thought seriously about moving to England because I still have these like euphonium. brass bands in like every single little town. You know, yeah. we could be a professional euphonium player. Right. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. Does that sound fun to be a euphonium player? I mean, sure. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> Is it fun to play clarinet? No. <laughs> no, it is. It is. Yeah. But uh, the the trumpet is like, it's a fucking, I was just talking to Dave Douglas like two days ago. Oh, I saw like, that, yeah. It's a pain in the ass instrument. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know. Is it not? It, it just, I just feel like it's physically, yeah, exactly. Like you have to sort of bend to it more than it's going to bend to you. Yeah. You got to be in shape to really feel like you're playing well because otherwise you're fighting the instrument. It's also really easy to sound bad on that instrument. <clears throat> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is like like you can hear when someone like is mm-hmm. I don't know maybe I'm, maybe like my... it's tough. I mean, and a lot of people like um, like I, <laughs> I had a friend whose dad was always stressed out anytime a trumpet player went to play because like fifty percent of the time they'd miss the note, it would crack or whatever. Right. You know, we're younger than them, but uh, and that would like really stress the guy out. This non musician dude, mm-hmm. um, and I was thinking about that the other day. Um, it's it's like sometimes I don't know, just like the accuracy of the instrument and uh some people just really read that like as oh, okay, you can't play or whatever, or like, oh, they're missing everything. Mm-hmm. And it's like it could just be like, Oh, that got away from me right there. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. So yeah, it's easy to sound bad, I guess. It's easy to sound bad, but it's also <laughs> like um when you're a kid and you start playing the trumpet, like how, hmm. when do you actually start enjoying it? Because is it hard to it seems like it's kind of difficult instrument to start with. I don't know. I remember that my uh, my dad called me like a dying moose or something. He said it sounded like a dying moose. Right. Um, I mean, years later, that's like the stuff I work on. No, right? yeah, no, you and I'm focus like, on that. You're really trying to get that dying moose sound down. Um, you know, I had it initially, but I lost yeah. it. Um, it took a it took a while, but by the time I mean I started in like fourth grade. By the time I was in, like, fifth grade, it was, like, super fun, and yeah. I was, like, better than the other kids, so I liked that, you know? Uh-huh. Um, as, like, a, you know, a mean child. Uh, no, I wasn't mean, but I got I got really excited about just, like, getting good at something, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was the first thing. I mean, I've always gotten the impression from you, and as I'm sitting across from you now and looking at what you're wearing, that you uh-huh. that you enjoy Chicago. I love Chicago. <laughs> It sounds like it took a while. It took a while. The first nine years I was there, I just wanted to get back to New York. Like, yeah. I just wanted to be in New York. Um, I went to school in Boston. And, like, basically... You went to high school or college? I went to college in Boston. Where'd you go? I went to NEC. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All four years? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was basically as soon as I left, I, like, went running back to Chicago, kind of. Um. I like played in punk bands in the summer and like lived on with trumpet. my band. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Punk. Wait, who did you study with at NEC? Uh, John McNeil. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie Schluter. So you were like in the classical conservatory. I was in a jazz program. Okay. Um, but you could split your studio. Yeah. Um, and so John had a lot of harmony information, and Charlie really can play the trumpet. <laughs> he like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whew, he's principal of the Boston Symphony, 
and then um, Joe Morris. Um, you studied with Joe at NEC? Mm-hmm. And Steve Lacey. You got to study with Steve? Mm-hmm. That must, like, when, when were you there? Because he died in what, 2004? Mm-hmm. Um, I was there 2001 to 2005. So you knew Steve towards the end of his life? Mm-hmm. Were yeah. you familiar with him prior to meeting him? I was familiar with him um, before he came to the school. You, like, we, like, people knew he was coming. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was, like, diving into stuff. And I remember I bought two of his records on the same day, probably, uh, probably my sophomore year of mm-hmm. college. Um, the Rent and Reflections. Okay. Which are like two pretty different periods of his uh, musical life. Um, and I was just like, from, I, I was obsessed. You, like, you I was just it, like, it clicked Whoa. immediately? And I wasn't like, you know, the upperclassmen, you know, had the first shot at studying with Steve. So I wasn't, I didn't get to study with him People that very were first semester. To study with him. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I didn't get that first semester, but the next year I was in a studio and I was, it was wild. It was awesome. Was he like his health? Like he was okay enough to. Yeah, he was, uh, he was an incredible, yeah, he was an incredible life force, I think. Uh, yeah. But he got really sick and had to stop teaching because you have, I mean, he had liver cancer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, As a teenager in Chicago, were you accessing the aspects of Chicago's jazz history firsthand? Were you aware of the AACM? Were you going to see stuff like that? Um, I wasn't really aware of the AACM um, until probably my senior year, just after my senior year of high school. Um, and my um, I would I went down to the Velvet Lounge, though. Fred Anderson's uh, place. Fred Anderson's place, yeah. yeah. And those were the first places where, like, he... Uh, He's now passed, but he was just an incredibly gentle and, like, giving person. Fred. Yeah. Yeah. So, so awesome. And he would let me in to uh, check out the jam session. He'd actually work the door there, right? He worked the door. Yeah. Yeah. He worked the door, and uh, he would let me in. He'd be like, don't drink. (laughs) I was like, okay. And I didn't. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I watched the sessions for a while before I, like, had the, like, courage to go up and play. And you could just go up? You didn't have to be invited up, or...? You could go up. You just went and saw the dude, and um, I, I, it was before Isaiah Spencer was running it. I can't remember, which, um, but because uh, I didn't really know anybody then. Uh-huh. Uh But yeah, you would put your name basically on a list. Yeah. And they would like call you up. Did uh, Did you get to know Fred, or was it just sort of like at the door? I did. Say yeah, hi I did. Later, you know, more yeah. like two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand seven, because um, I went to the Velvet Lounge all the time then. You know. Uh-huh. Um, once I found out about like Chicago, the the free jazz history and the AACM and, and all of that, I was really excited about Chicago music. Mm-hmm. And I would like follow people around like in the paper, like Josh Abrams was mm-hmm. one guy, bass player. I would see his name and I'd go to like every gig he had. And he had a trio with Matana Roberts and Chad Taylor mm-hmm. called Sticks and Stones. And I saw them as many, I, I saw them a lot. Um, were you playing with people at that time, or you were just sort of, like, observing? I was kind of observing. The first gig I played on the free jazz tip uh, was at 3030. Do you remember that place? I've only been to Chicago, like, twice for one or two days at a time. Okay. Um, do you know Elastic? Yeah, Elastic there, Arts? Yeah. yeah. So Elastic is now what 3030 has become. Okay. So, like, there's the new Elastic. There was an older Elastic. And before that, um, there was a church at 3030 West, whatever. And uh, they had a performance space upstairs. And then like, usually a free jazz cat was living in the basement. Um, when I started coming around, I think it was Jason Stein. I was about to say, yeah, Jason Stein. I remember him telling me he lived in a <laughs> yeah. basement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that was a great time. I was super young, so maybe that has something to do with it. But I just sure, felt but- like everything was super exciting and new. And, like, starting to play with, like, all these guys that were just so good. Yeah. Um, but these are legitimately great musicians in mm-hmm. a legitimately great city. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're young, it's very easy to become excited, whoever you are, wherever you are, whoever you're around, and that's a good thing. Right. But when you get to do that in a place like Chicago, and these are the people you're interacting with, like, that, no, like, it's it's a little more It was fun, yeah. Real. It was it was real, yeah, it was fun. It was yeah. great. Um, uh the first gig I played, I think, was 
a trio with this tenor player, Joe Sexton, okay. who has made one record with Joe Morris um, that's great, um, called Natural History. That was the band name, and I think the record was called Fur. Okay. And he's disappeared as far as I know. No one knows where he is. And uh, I mean, some people do. Right. You're not one of them. <laughs> I don't. Them. Yeah. Uh, and then the drummer, Mark Reardon. Who's also a great piano player. Okay, I know the name. Yeah, he's in L.A. now, but he I, he like came out to Chicago after a lot of prodding from me mm-hmm. um, a couple years after we played that first gig. So, yeah, I think it was Rempus who gave us that first gig. He, yeah, he seems like, in addition to being like a great sax player, and, and I know he you know uh, coordinates different series and stuff, but he seems to be like a guy that connects things together. Yeah, big time. Yeah. You know, he's, yeah, he's... A, a people connector for sure, but he also uh, has a lot of taste, right? Like, he's not trying to make connections just so that he can be part of a connection. Right. You know? He's, right, 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 right. It's, it's, he's a great, a great human. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he gave us that first gig at, at 3030, I'm pretty sure. Who's, was it free improvisation <laughs> or you guys mm-hmm. were right? Yeah. Yeah, it was a band, but we improvised. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and we, <laughs> you know, kind of got like, hyped up before we played and stuff like that you know what do you mean you know we we just have these like really serious backstage talks <laughs> that were like aggressively sarcastic <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> like, like we're gonna go out and kill yeah, them, right? ready? no we're gonna go out and like don't don't play anything you don't mean if you don't mean it just stop playing stop playing like this like really you aggressively serious or you're just fucking with each other i'm not sure i okay. to this day i can't tell <laughs> and i was part of it so um, and we would drink like PBRs and, uh, you know, just like, it was kind of a little bit of a punk aesthetic playing like free jazz. I feel like almost all the musicians I have met and talked to f- from Chicago, like that's part of who they are. There's something about it. Like, and I know if you, like I talked to Ken about this, you know, a couple times sort of at length about, you know, when he was coming up, you know, in the you know, early to mid nineties in Chicago, there was a lot of overlap, you know, bands like Tortoise were playing on the same bills as like, you know, the Vandermark's groups or, you know, Jim O'Rourke, all these people. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that's it, just kind of become ingrained in the Chicago improviser scene. It feels like a little less uh, precious to me than a lot of stuff in New York. Yeah, definitely. I would say precious is a good word to use. Yeah. 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 Um, preciousness is a little bit soft or something. Right. Um, not to say there's not people that take a lot of time and there's a lot of patience, but like, yeah, I think things are, uh, I mean, the energy music part of it is mm-hmm. definitely, you know, tangible Yeah, and like physical in uh-huh. a way. I don't know if that's really the right way to say it. It's weird. You know, one of the first Chicago musicians, <laughs> improvising musicians that I got like really into and, you know, is a musician and whose music has really meant a lot to me is Fred Anderson. Mm-hmm. And however it happened. I think I randomly was at a record store and I saw that he, that Hamid Drake had made right. a record with Fred Anderson. I knew Hamid. Right. I bought it. And in my mind, Fred Anderson was like, oh, this guy's like a Chicago giant. And it was later on I sort of realized that, no, he was sort of like, in a lot of ways, like not as appreciated as much as a lot of his peers were. Um, Is that true? or? I mean, I only really think of him as a legend. So I don't right. know, maybe my like vision is skewed. Yeah. Or my memory. I don't know. Um, Fred really, like, cultivated a scene um, that also, like, included a lot of growth of younger musicians mm-hmm. in Chicago. And sometimes I feel like when you do that, instead of chasing your own gigs, you know, you, like, you might not get the recognition, you get, yeah. but yeah, you yeah, have yeah. this other deeper thing. So, yeah, you know. I could I could name quite a few people that have sort of gone that way. And yeah. It, there's, there's, there's something very noble about it. Yeah. And especially when it's like, that's what you want to be doing too. I mean, right. yeah, I don't know. Fred, Fred was awesome. Um, I guess who who are you thinking of when you're thinking of like other guys like like Braxton well, people, yeah, or people, like if you think about people Fred's age, you know, who kind of came up around the same time. You know, you have people like Anthony Braxton and Henry Threadgill and Leo yeah. Smith and you know yeah. on and on and on and on. And I think Wadada is getting a lot more. Well, now he is. Inf- yeah. He's, you know, but he was old. like in obscurity for a long time. I feel like. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe not obscurity. Maybe that's not the right. But he wasn't like Henry Threadgill or Braxton, right. who are these superstars. You know. Yeah, those guys are superstars, but they're superstars in the way that like they they have become. I mean, 
musically we don't need to talk about it we know that they are monsters they're great you know but certainly there was you know they each of them had experiences with major record labels and had forces yeah you know pushing them to you know next levels of, of recognition and totally paydays but someone like um like leo i feel like any improviser you talk to of the last 40 years is gonna be like oh yeah leo smith like that guy is a giant yeah um I feel like Bill Dixon's another kind of guy uh, in that Leo Smith, uh, like, just, like, incredible trumpet player. Bill Dixon, some of those records in the 60s, and, like, I just... Did you know Bill? I did not. Yeah. Um, I met him once, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but I did not know him, no. But those records are important to you? Oh, yeah. Um, that November, was it 19... 19- 81 and 1961 I don't oh. know that seems really that seems like, <laughs> seems like maybe I should know that <laughs> but wait, what do you what do you get out of that music I know like I'm not that familiar I'm more familiar with ideas about Bill Dixon I'm more familiar with the reverence that a lot of musicians not just brass players have for Bill Dixon and his work but I actually don't know his music that well some of the stuff he was doing earlier he uh when it was a little bit more uh like free jazzy where like you're moving around more with with rhythm um and some of the later stuff uh he he had these like timbral explorations that i hadn't heard really anybody else do right uh, except for super modern players super current players i say like uh greg kelly is one of the first sure. dudes i heard do sound stuff but bill dixon was doing that way back in the day um uh-huh. and mixing it um with uh, more traditional uh, lyrical playing or more traditional trumpet playing, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on, he, you know, he made whole. Um, he there's a lot of live performances where like there'll be whole tracks of him just like with a, a split multiphonic sound, you know, a for, whole track. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's not a droney thing necessarily. It's like a rhythmic thing too. I mean, he he was putting those ideas together a long time ago yeah um, and it's stuff that i'm super interested in yeah, yeah 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 he he seems to loom pretty large in a lot of trumpet players minds like he yeah i think so <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 um so so the first gig is with who was it again? It was a trio where you guys were like talking shit to each other, military strategy style backstage. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know what that was. I know, I just, I've been watching all these <laughs> army movies lately. I'm actually, as you can see, like I'm going through a phase right now. You're going now. through a phase. That's cool. But um, like you see these guys like in in their in, uh, when they're doing when they're like doing their exercises, you know, and they're yelling at each other, you know, like don't drop your pack, you know, Charlie's right behind you, you know, da, 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 da. right, right, right. And it, it <laughs> like, reminds me of like what you're saying backstage of like yeah, it's like a way to get hyped up, you know, yeah. a way to get the energy like super uh, present, I guess, in yourself. Right. Is the is there a lot of like machismo shit in or was there at the time in Chicago that you had to contend with? Um, no. Um, not in the free jazz scene. What I I really like r- hated the machismo in the straight ahead scene. Actually, that was like um, a big reason why I didn't even want to go down that route. Really, once I like as I went to school as like a jazz, you know, I wanted to play jazz. Wanted to play I wanted, jazz. Yeah. I wanted to play bebop. Right. You know, I couldn't do it, but I wanted to wanted to do it really bad. And the machismo of that really bummed me out big time. What? How? How would you describe it? Oh, you know, like, um, you know, having a master class with someone who's like, you gotta, you gotta learn this solo and you gotta, uh, you gotta transcribe it and put it in all 12 keys mm-hmm. and memorize it in all 12 keys and then pull your licks out and then do all the licks in all 12 keys. And, da, 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 and if you can't do this, you're not a jazz musician, you know, like if you can't do this, mm-hmm. you're not this. And that's just a bummer because mm-hmm. who says <laughs> right. I can't do this, but I am this, you know, um, or maybe I'm not, and who cares? Yeah, you know, yeah. it was just so far away from like the soul part of the music or whatever. The like, you know, that 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 aspect of it of someone telling you you do it this way or you're not, or the highway or whatever. Yeah, yeah. just and and you said militaristic for that other thing. I feel like that is very like you know, there's a right way to do things. If you can't do it the right way, then you might as well not try. Mm-hmm. And that's just a bummer to me. Not just musically, just like 
Right, in general. <laughs> okay, yeah. That's a bummer. <laughs> it's a bummer. Yeah. yeah, like life's an experiment. It's an exploration. And that was that was during your time in Boston. That was, yeah. And I felt it in high school, too. Uh, I saw, I don't know if you have to bleep this out, but I saw an Arturo Sandoval concert. And I was with these other trumpet players, and they're, like, super excited about this high playing, you know. And we met him backstage, and he was just such a dick. Really? He was a big-time dick, and he was really uh, misogynistic. Like, you got it within a couple minutes? Within that- a couple minutes. I mean, just, like, the way he was treating the women around him, and he had, like, a cigar, and, like, it was just such a scene. I was like, man, I thought you were, like, Dizzy's protege, you know? Like, right. Dizzy didn't seem like that. I don't know, I guess. Sure, but, but you know that Fred Anderson wasn't like <laughs> that. I know that Fred Anderson wasn't like that. Right. right. I knew that Fred Anderson wasn't like that. Um, I knew that Ken wasn't like that, right. or Rempus, or any of these, you know, at... Uh, I mean, I guess I didn't know that at that time, really, because I was in high school. But looking back on it, that's mm-hmm. not the way you have to act. Right. You know, you don't have to be a big man to play high trumpet or whatever. <laughs> you know, you don't right, have to. Right, right. You know, the whole, the whole um, culture around the straight ahead scene um, really bummed me out. And uh, I don't think that was true for everybody in the mm-hmm. scene. But the impressions that I got, you know, really affected me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I know that as a woman, w- one is going to have a very, di- you know, it's it's going to be a very different experience from what I experienced growing up. No matter what, how specific my experience may or may not have been, I'm I'm going to find a point here. Um, right. <laughs> but for me, like something that I've been turned off by, especially like as a younger person, still I'm like this, but especially when I was like younger and kind of trying to figure things out, uh, like I w- there anything that seemed like specifically unwelcoming yeah like i would just run away from it i don't want to be anywhere that i wasn't wanted you know and <laughs> right sort of like some of that macho stuff to me like when i was around that i was like fuck it i guess you know this isn't for me <laughs> right yeah and and sometimes i mean it takes a certain amount of um not responsibility but it takes a certain amount of knowing yourself to realize that that's not what you want to be you know self-awareness i guess because you know a lot of people i think live unhappy lives because they want to be somewhere and they're not welcome and they feel terrible you know they they keep trying to push something and it's like why do you want to be with those people anyway they're jerks or whatever right. or like why do you want to work a million hours to make a million dollars or something like uh-huh. doesn't sound fun right um I don't know if I'll find a point though. So, <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I mean, I mean, so the trumpet, uh, you were able before college, during college, after college. Do you feel like you were able to find peop- other older trumpet players to, or any musician who sort of like help you nur- nurture you? Um, after college, um, let's see. I I like sought out Fred Lombercombe as someone I really wanted to. Uh, play with really because you liked his music um because i liked his music and also because he was one of the first people to ask me to play so Mm -hmm. i felt like i could ask him to you know you want to play play a session you know Mm -hmm. i think uh, session feels like very new york maybe it's just that we're getting older and like everyone's like has these sessions all the time but Mm -hmm. i feel like back in the day it was like hey do you want to come over and play or whatever like um but yeah fred lombercombe was the first person to ask me to play and he asked me to play in his lightbox orchestra at um what became umbrella festival it's called the phrenology festival back then at the hungry brain mm-hmm. and i like met all the all the people in the scene that night like so many people because fred asked me to do this one gig it was a large group it was a large group yeah and there was also a large audience of a lot of musicians mm-hmm. um and a lot of just like folks that come out um so Fred, I felt like, was like a, an early mentor. Um, Rob Mazurik wasn't around so much. But he was I, touring a lot. He was touring a lot. He also lived a bunch of different places. But, man, I loved the Chicago Underground duo. Mm-hmm. Loved the Chicago Underground duo. Um, that record, Synesthesia, and then the one that came after that, the green one, uh, Access and Alignment, I okay. think. Those two records... Like, I spun constantly. Really? So even though we didn't really have, like, a mentorship relationship then, we're friends now, um, like, I felt like in a lot of ways I was I was checking that out heavily, so it was an, a big influence. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. Um, Josh Berman was around. We worked at the Record Mart together. You worked at the Record Mart? I did, the yeah. The Jazz Mart? The Jazz Mart. Four years, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. That place is legendary. 
Yeah, yeah. It was like um, Keith and Josh Berman and Frank Rosalie and me, Jason Ashevitz had just left. Um, yeah, this guy Jacob Cart that makes modular music now. Um, a lot of people. Um, Steve Dawson and Travis. I mean, it was just like a... a that was a real education in and of itself. That's like I should the, say that. <laughs> that place was the... I never went to it, but like I've just heard all these stories about the fame Jazz Mart from Chicago. Right. I also got that gig because Fred had me play that Lightbox gig. I, I met Josh that night, and I met Keith, and I just dropped off an application at the Record Mart. And they were like, oh, we work there. You know, we'll put a word <laughs> yeah, into you. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And I got a call the next day for an interview. So it was like... It was really... A great time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This is what year? Uh, this is... T- so I took a little bit of time off of school. I took a semester off because I got super sick. Mm-hmm. Had to get my gallbladder uh, <sighs> taken out. And uh, then, so this is November... October, November 2004. I started working there. Okay. And then I went back to school, actually. Back to Boston. Back to Boston. And then I came back in May, and I continued working there for like another three, yeah, three yeah, yeah, years yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when did you le- When did you go from Chicago to here? So I left Chicago in 2013 and went to Baltimore. Why? Uh, grad school. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dave Ballou. Uh huh. He runs the jazz program at Towson University. Right. Uh huh. And we had met on the road. I was like trying to figure out what my next move was anyways um i kind of i really wanted to like apply to wesleyan but i was like trying to get my stuff together and didn't really have it together and we were you wanted to go back to school i i did i wanted to like change it up because you were what you were just playing gigs and shit Uh, (laughs) yeah i was just playing gigs and like things hadn't really like things started off really awesome like met a whole bunch of people did Uh a whole bunch of things and then um things kind of like mm, Got stagnant for a while. Were you making records? No. Why not? Um, I just, I didn't get it together. I, like, tried to make some records. I recorded some records. I even pressed some vinyl. Um, really? That has never come out officially. Wait, yeah. wh- why, why not? Uh, I ran out of money. <laughs> um, but uh, I was on some records back then. A couple mm-hmm. Keith Jackson records and, and a Jimian record and... Um, some other stuff played, you know, I was on some records, but things got a little messed up for me personally. Mm -hmm. So I had to get out of Dodge basically. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had this opportunity to go to grad school with an assistantship and I was like, let's do that. Because it was a way to, it was a way to get out of town because town had become bad for you. Town had become bad for me. Yeah. Yeah. So Baltimore, had you been there before? I had been, I'd toured there before. I'd played there before. Right. I had never lived there before. <laughs> the Wire takes place in Baltimore. It does. <laughs> like for good reason, I think. For, for a good reason. <laughs> Did mm. you dig Baltimore? Um, I dig the cats in Baltimore. I really right. do. There are some awesome musicians in Baltimore. Uh-huh. Um, and it's a really small, vibrant scene uh, of a lot of creative folks, you know. Um, DC is not far away. DC is not far, which means Luke Stewart, uh, which means Anthony Perrog, which means Janelle. Um, I don't know the rules of podcasting. If you can just talk about people's names, yeah, of course you okay, can. Cool. I mean, we love Luke Stewart. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we love Luke Stewart. Yeah, but um, Luke's, DC does mean Luke Stewart. DC. Well, I mean, he's an incredible person. He's an organizer. You know, yeah. he's a he's a homie, of course, but and a great bass player. But he's also an organizer and. Um, so yeah, DC meant Luke Stewart to me and Anthony Perrog and Janelle. Um, so it was yeah, there was a there's this great young cat in Baltimore named Jared Gilgore, an alto player that I know that name. You know, and my homie Toby Summerfield from Chicago was living in Virginia. So I had like a Is he a guitar player? He's a guitar player and he's a bass player. Okay. Um and he plays upright in a lot of my or he played upright in a lot of my bands in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um and then in Baltimore. Um but yeah, you know, grad school was a thing, um, and when it was over, I was basically, I didn't finish technically, but, uh, you know, they give you money for a couple of years, and then that <laughs> stops, so I was like, all right, well, I'm, I'm, out. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> you were studying under Dave Blue? Yeah, I was studying under Dave Blue, who's, uh, I, yeah, he's he's a great trumpet player. Um, yeah. It's like super together chops, mm-hmm. you know? 
Um, studied under Dave Blue there. I took, uh, I was studying like Max MSP. I, fi- I, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to grad school. I should learn Max. It's an you academic know? thing to do. Yeah, it's like you know, you have to check it off your check boxes or whatever. Like. Really? Did you enjoy Max MSP? It was so hard to do anything for a while, but I, I did enjoy it. I like it was a means to play in quad basically. Like I, I don't know if I was doing it right. But the system I rigged up at the end was I had this like little controller with a bunch of sliders. It's mm-hmm. called like a Korg Chaos, or not a Chaos Pad. It's called a Korg uh, Control or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, I know those things. Yeah, yeah. So it's got like eight sliders and eight knobs and a stop and start basically. And so I like field recorded all these sounds like creaks and like dryers and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And I put it in. And instead of like panning or volume, the not the the sliders were volume and the uh, the knobs were uh, speed. So I just did a bunch of shows where I would have these like dryer sounds and birds and stuff, and then like I would leave four sliders to record what was going on in the room in the band. Yeah. Okay. So I would perform with like a group and record what's going on and just like set it up in quad. And it, I don't know if it was cool or not, but it was it was like fun. Yeah. You know, and you get these like crazy soundscapes going. You know. Yeah. And, uh, I found a patch that was called like drunk or something, and like. It just basically meant they, it moved around this, like, quad space in a, like, hippity pattern. Like right, a, right, right. You know, a staggering pattern, I guess. So it was cool, you know. You're doing this in Baltimore. I was like, doing this in Baltimore, yeah. At, like, yeah. the Red Room and stuff? At, like, the Red Room, yes. And at, like, loft spaces. And, right. Um, I did, like, an amplified trumpet piece for a High Zero concert. Um, that's... That's different though. But I had like a desktop, you know? So You're I'm, dragging that around I'm like dragging a desktop out. It reminded yeah. me of when I was a kid playing these punk bands, I had this like huge Ampeg one by fifteen and some pedals. And like I remember I got to a point where I was loading out my gear and I was like, Look, why am I loading why I, I play the trumpet. You play the trumpet. The whole the whole thing. You need to be laughing at the bass players and the drummers <laughs> as know. you pack your shit into uh, a bag, throw it over your shoulder and bounce. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's it's important. Yeah, and so the Max MSP thing with the desktop was short lived for me. Yeah. As far no, as uh, I mean also like Max MSP, I feel like <laughs> Like, look, you know, even if you don't know how to play, if someone doesn't know how to play the trumpet, like, Mm -hmm. you put it against your lips, you breathe into it, and you wiggle your fingers, like, pretty quickly, like, like, sound production comes very naturally. To be staring at, like, a bunch of crazy ones and zeros, like, it's... Well, yeah, I mean, the the thing for me, too, was, like, I would start a sound, and it would, like, be repeating and stuff, this, like, low dryer sound, and, Uh like, ten minutes later, I'd be like, what is that? (laughs) Like, oh, yeah, like, I left this sound on, you know, it was, like... I wasn't, it was, it was cool, but it was definitely like, it took you out of the moment, Mm -hmm. right? So like a lot of like, a lot of my playing, a lot of people's playing, you're, you're playing and you're, maybe your eyes are closed and you're listening and you're going and then it's like, where's this like, where are these birds still coming from or whatever? (laughs) Like, oh shoot. And then that like screws you up for the next two minutes or whatever. Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after you did not complete grad school, you, you were like, I'm done with Baltimore? I worked at Guitar Center for like a year. It must have been a long year. <laughs> a long year. Guitar My, Center in Baltimore? Guitar Center in Towson. Yeah, there's two. One in Towson and one in uh, Glen Burnie. I can't, as a, as a customer, I can't be in Guitar <laughs> Center for more than five or ten minutes. It was rough. I worked in the pro audio department, so I sold, that's like the best place to be. It's if you have to separate be there. from the floor. You sell microphones. You can so, play keyboards all day. And you just sell like Korg Tritons to like want to be like hip-hop producers? I mean... Very rarely do you see a cork triton anymore, but yeah, like right? Some show my age, or whatever, like the, NPC two thousand or whatever, or no, four thousand. Not even that, and they like, yeah, but, but yes, you're right. Guitar center is the worst. It's the worst. And you work for commission? I did. Did you make any money? Oh yeah. Really? <laughs> I mean, if I needed to, like, I, I'm pretty resourceful. Like, uh-huh. if I need dough, I'm gonna make dough. You're gonna make dough, right? And so, like, my last couple months there, actually, which were probably the darkest point it was like the darkest point of my baltimore life i was like the number one salesperson <laughs> in the store huh. just because i like went to work turned on this thing yeah and left and then was just like why am i doing this was working there part of the darkness it didn't help <laughs> <laughs> my car had broke down i'm like i got a, i took out student loans even though i was getting paid yeah and uh bought a car that was my idea, right? I'm gonna get the student loan to get a car. Did you get a nice car? Uh, no, I got a I got a Subaru uh, from 2000. It's not a bad car, right. but it was from the Midwest and had a lot of rust I didn't know about. 
But also, I got in this little fender bender in Philly. They didn't tighten the lug nuts on my wheel. Uh So my wheel basically fell off one night, and then the rear differential seized. So it was like a whole bunch of things. Were you injured? Nah. Um, And I had driven from Philly to Baltimore with a wheel with one lug nut on. Fuck. Yeah. So I was lucky. That's the second time in my life that's happened. The other time, I drove from Indianapolis to Athens, Ohio. With a wheel with not tight and lug nuts. Uh, and then the next day, my buddy drove it and it flew off the car. He was okay. He was on some back road. But uh, if we had done that at 70 or 80, whew. That had been it. That might have been it. That might have been it. It might have been a wrap. <laughs> might have been a wrap. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyways, so that didn't happen, though. Yeah, so yeah, I could yeah. live this, like, futile existence at Guitar Center. Um, where I took the bus. I took two buses to get there. It took me two hours to get to work. Oh. So, did, yeah. so I was like, I should move to New York with no money, because that's a good idea. This is what, 2000? Um, this is 2015. So you didn't go um, back to Chicago first? No. You live in Baltimore. Yeah. You moved to New York. Moved to New York, yeah. And did you have like, oh, I'm going to go to New York, I'm going to do this, that, and the other? Or you were just like, I can't work at guitars here? <laughs> I was, yeah. I mean, a lot of my major life moves have been like out of desperation. Yeah. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I got to do something else. Uh, and so I'll go do something. That else. works out a lot of time, though. I think. I think so. I think like there's something about being close to the line that makes you work a lot harder. <laughs> yeah, but also there's some, something happens when, because typically when people are in a situation that they're not happy with, whether it's like you know a stupid job that's making them crazy, or like you know a, a romantic partner that's making them crazy, um, you know a bandmate that's making them crazy. Usually there's this thing in their head that's like, well, I can't just like leave it because what's going to happen? You know, it'll, you know, this is, there's like a security fear. But once you finally just like rip the bandaid off and say, fuck it, I'm done. Like I can't, you know, typically almost hundred percent of the time, it's a huge step in the right direction. I think so. I mean, I think the other thing is that it could be a huge step in the wrong direction and then you're totally (laughs) fucked. But, uh, there's learning to be had there too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) So wait, this is 2015. 2015 this is uh i arrived in april 2015 right and i left chicago in august of 2016 man was it 2012 i left in august 2012 Mm -hmm. i guess and you when you came to new york in 2015 you must have already known a lot of people i did yeah Yeah. i did um i've been touring since 2007 maybe six something like that Mm -hmm. um and so, over the years, I met a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Um, my family, like my whole family's here too, which didn't. Hurt. So you could go like back to your family's house in Long Island and like eat dinner. No, not not that sort of thing. But my little sister actually was living in Red Hook. Oh. And when I got this space in Red Hook, I didn't finish that story about my mom. Anyways, I was living on the block that my mom had li- grown up on when I was staying with the Jimmy Inn for a couple weeks. In in Sunset. Now it's Sunset Park. Back then it was Bay Ridge. Right. Like 60th and 5th, basically this huge giant. Catholic Church, Our Lady of Perpetual Help, is where she went to Mass and also where she went to Catholic school as a little girl. And she was like, oh, you must be right by my house. And she had literally grown up kitty corner to where I was staying. And you had no idea? I had no idea. And then I moved to Red Hook, and my little sister was living a block away. So I was like, okay. This all makes sense. Okay, universe. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, sometimes the universe gives you signs that... The secret. No, but you're doing the right thing. I mean... Um, totally. You know, you'll bump into someone on the street, and you're like, "Wow, I didn't expect to see that person." You know, but right. did so? What did you do when you landed? You were like, like just hustling gigs, or you, I mean, I was hustling gigs. I had like one guitar commission, guitar center commission check uh, that uh-huh. came shortly after I got here. <laughs> uh-huh. So, uh huh. So, yeah, I was I was hustling up work. I like I I. Uh, Worked at Green Mountain Energy. I worked at a bunch of different places. I worked at, yeah, I worked for those guys for a while. I, like, did, you know, the jobs that you do when you don't want to do them, but you have to do them. You know, the jobs that nobody... Um, I picked up some cool stuff. Like, I worked at a fish stand, which I still kind of do sometimes. A it's, fish stand? Yeah, I worked for this fish mon- I was a fishmonger working for a fisherman, and that's actually awesome work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it took me a while to kind of get my thing together. It takes know. a while. Yeah. Um, but I was playing a lot of sessions, and I was going to a lot of shows, and um, I picked up work at Manhattan Inn, running sound. Right. You were doing that series there. And then I started the series, yeah. And then things started, like, becoming more chill, and I was starting to get into a routine, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And running sound, um, I worked for a couple other places, like, basically setting up microphones and doing uh, recordings of 
panels and stuff like that or uh-huh. concerts. Um, and so, yeah, I started getting my, my groove together, as it were. And uh, yeah. I mean, now that you've been here for two years, do you feel like you've got like a little nest around you? I have a nest now, yeah. I've got a, my my spot is awesome. It's all musicians, so we have a drum set and a PA. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can rehearse there. You know, I I can play in my room. Um, and you finally made a record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it took a minute. And I finally made a record. <laughs> <laughs> but but to be so, I the record the quartet is all Chicago musicians. It is, yeah. All yeah. of them live in New York, I think. <laughs> at the time. Yeah. At the time, Tamika wasn't living here quite yet, um, but she was visiting. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah. Yeah, they were all living in New York. Uh, Jimian's now flying planes in Alaska mostly. Right. He's a very... <laughs> it, it's hard It's hard to keep uh, to keep up with him. Yeah, man. Whether he's living in a church or flying airplanes. Like, yeah, he's, he's a, a beautiful cat, and he just falls ass backwards into opportunities, <laughs> and he takes yeah. them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and he can play. And he can play. And he's put in tons of time on the road and work. Right. And like, you know, he's done the... Yeah, he can play. He's got a great sound. But but going back to however many years ago when you were in Chicago and not making records, like what, uh, what finally happened or 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 to to make you say, okay, I'm gonna make a record now. Um, I was actually approached by the label dudes. Uh huh. Um, so I put this band together because the Nick Mazzarella trio was coming to New York. Um, he put out a really great record on International Anthem. And uh, it was with Frank, Rosalie, and Anton Hatwich, um, who are all, like, really close friends. And so I put this um, this band together for Manhattan Inn, and I wanted it to, like, kind of aesthetically work, you know, as a show, hold together. So I thought I'd put together this Chicago band, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought that'd be a dope pairing. Um, they saw that show, and they really liked it, and they wanted to make a record. Mm-hmm. And they kind of wanted to make a different type of record they, than what I made for them. But um, what, what, what do you mean? Uh, I think they wanted us to. Imp- now I have like a better understanding than what they initially met. Uh, obviously, I guess. But they wanted to like do a Teal Macero thing, basically, where they record a whole bunch of improvised sessions uh-huh. and make a piece out of it, Somehow or make sculpted a into sculpted into a right. record. And instead, I like because the first gig we played was improvised. Basically, I had a couple sketches, but. Uh, I ended up writing just like somewhat thematic music, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but mean, it worked. It's you know? an unusual record, to be certain. Sure, maybe. In, no, it is. <laughs> I mean, it's like it, it's it's great, and I really enjoy it. But it's also like um, in the world of improvised music, like you, it it, it kind of sticks out as like its own thing. It's it's really. I wish more people were making records like that. I wish more mm-hmm. people would you know treat their record as an abstract you know, uh, presentation unto itself. Sure. Like, when you guys play live, do you play that that music in that sequence? For the tour, we did, yeah. For really? the Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. And then in Chicago, we actually did the whole record with the guitar ending. and. Who played the guitar? The guy who played on the record, Matt Schneider. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, we also had the three trumpets section on the record. Yeah. Um, I had the tr- trumpet players that... Uh, that were on the record, although the record, like the most, most of that trumpet is me, like just me and me and me overdubbing right. because the intonation of the live show was like kind of questionable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it feels really good, right? And then but I yeah. listen to it and it's like, ah, oh, okay. Questionable um, intonation. Questionable intonation, That's... but they are on it in other sections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in the same section, but just like a little bit more abstracted. Um, but yeah, we did it live and that was just super fun. Do you uh, have the itch to make more records now that you've seen one through to completion? Yes. It's fucking, it's like it's yeah. like I yeah. It's the thing I look most forward to about all everything in music making. To me the highlight is making records. Yeah. Um I'm making the next record is going to be pretty different. It's not not the next quartet record will hopefully get recorded early early 2018, but I have a trio record um with Lopez Brandon Lopez and Mike Pride and it's improvised. Oh super different than that record I mean that record's compositionally yeah 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 you know set up and it's an improvised record and I'm pretty excited about that one has too. that band been playing a lot you Mike and Brandon that band had been playing a fair amount and I, now it's me Mike and Luke as a trio that's the group now that's the group now but the record will, will be with Brandon cause we got um, I don't know if like a lot of 
I tried to tell everybody I knew about this once I found out about this, but Converse had a studio in Williamsburg. Converse Shoes? Converse Shoes, where, like, you wrote, like, a little, um, uh, what's called? Um, proposal? Proposal, yes, thank you. Uh, you write a proposal, and they their job is to record people every single day. So, like, chances are, if your proposal's written in English that you can read <laughs> uh, they'll take you are you serious and they give you a full day of recording at a pro shop spot with a real engineer um, they give you all the files you can go back and use their B room to mix yourself and they give you shoes wait is this still going on it just en- it like ended maybe six months ago they, they lost their lease Converse couldn't keep a lease in Williamsburg um, <laughs> well they're skipping away <laughs> studio time well, yeah. I mean, I get, it has to be some sort of like tax loop for them, sure, you know. Sure, like, sure. but they do have a flagship spot now in Boston. How did I not know about this? Like, it, it like all the rock musicians I had been meeting, especially the younger cats, like in their twenties, they knew about this. And then, like, I found out, and I tried to tell as many. Imp- I think, I think Lopez might have had a session there after. Did anyone else? Like, like, why weren't people taking advantage of this? Um. Yeah, I don't know. Uh. I don't want to sound dark or anything, but I wonder if that like says something about <laughs> why things tend to be the way that they are. You know, like if there's an opportunity like that right in your face and you don't take it, what's wrong with you? Right. Yeah, you got to take that. So you guys made a record. So we made a record. Yeah. Um, and the only bummer is that I let the engineer talk me, and I really, when I say he talked me into it, it was like I was fighting back so hard to have like three or four mics on the drums, and this guy probably put up like thirteen or fourteen microphones. Okay. So it's like mixing the record uh, is tougher than usual uh for me like i i do i've done a fair amount of mixing but usually i use three mics on the drums four mics really four mics on the drums yeah, yeah. i go I'll, I'll do a like a measured overhead thing with two overheads and a kick and snare yeah bass drum and snare sorry drummers um but you can't just like mute the tracks you don't want like you the... can kind of but like the positioning is like right. because he used so many mics he right. was thinking it about it in a different ratio so you get weird phasing stuff so when phasing stuff when you just go to like right. the overheads but the music sounds I'm, I'm excited about it I think. so that's coming out that will be coming out uh, Kevin Riley is going to put that out right so we're looking now probably end of the year beginning of next year yeah 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 um, for timeline but yeah yeah and you're going to make more records yeah I'm going to make it hopefully with international hopefully another quartet record in the winter right um, me and Jason Nazri have a duo called Antiloper uh-huh. and we're working on a record now yeah, I got the itch. He's pretty great. The itch is yeah. like I'm I'm trying to finish. I'm working on and trying to finish five records right now. Yeah, and I can't get through any of them. I'm like this, like uh, I don't know. Like I'm I'm like entering. I'm coming closer to just like slipping into complete madness than I ever have before. And what do you mean by that? I just can't get anything done. I can't finish. Like nothing. It's like that's the toughest part about making records: finishing. Yeah, I had so much anxiety about that before this last, this before this first record came out. Yeah, I like was having serious anxiety about like what does it mean if I can't finish this. Well, how did you know when you were done? Um, the the process of it actually was easy for all that worrying. Like mm-hmm. we recorded in my sister's loft, so like you know that was easy. We did one day. Um, Listened back to the takes and chose the takes. Um, it helped that um, the engineers were super great. Like, everything sounded good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just had these, like... I had been kind of sitting on ideas for records for so long that I had a whole bunch of ideas um, right away, and I just went with... I went with that. I went with, like, my uh, my first inclination in a lot, of, in a lot of places of what I wanted to hear and just, mm-hmm. like finished it you Mm -hmm. know like we did two editing sessions in chicago um one where i added that brass part and played with the space echo Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) and another one where we like just went through and like chose takes and sequencing and da 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 um i had matt schneider come through and he played the guitar Mm -hmm. on a couple tracks um and i knew like i wanted this like Ives thing where like a, you know he has that stuff where like a marching band will all of a sudden march through the music or something right. you know like something will collide and that's where like this idea of like these trumpets like coming through or whatever yeah uh, that's where that came from yeah um, and so I just yeah are you touring a lot now? Um, we did a short tour for the record uh-huh. we did like 10 days and then 
Um, this fall is pretty busy, not with the quartet quite yet. We're doing like a, a Hyde Park Jazz Festival in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Super excited about that. Um, we, September 23rd, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. 1 p.m. at the Smart Museum in Hyde Park. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and then next summer, I think we're going to be going out as a quartet. But yeah. me and Jason, you know, duos, I said earlier, I think duos are like the hardest format. Yeah, why do you, what, you, yeah, you said that. And <laughs> I, I did say that. And I guess, you know, when I when I say that, I mean duos with other horn players. I guess is is yeah. what I meant is what I mean. Like it's because there's so much um it's so linear. Yeah. Um and then it's like the other option or, you know, one of the other of infinite options is going into a more textural space. Mm-hmm. And then this like if you have two instruments that are somewhat in the same uh timbral zone for a while, it can be really cool, like to have that collusion and then you're like, as a player I feel like I get I feel like I go to a, a similar spot or situation a lot of times, mm-hmm. um, and I and I don't know if that is tough. It, it's I don't know if it's tough to listen to. I guess mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as a performer, I get I can get a little cagey in my head, and I don't like that. Uh, you, you get know? frustrated that perhaps you're doing something that you've already done. <sighs> that or like, w- are we in the same place again? And a lot of times, when you're on the other side of the bells, it's not the way it sounds, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just trying to like push that format a bit um, is tough for me. I feel like I'm <laughs> I'm going to similar spaces a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Nazari, he plays the drums, and we're both playing synths also. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and we've been, we knew each other at NEC, so like, we've known each other a really long time. We've been playing together a really long time. Um, it's nice to be in a duo because you can actually go places mm-hmm. and play, you know, in one car or whatever. Yeah, or easy. like, it's way cheaper to get two musicians somewhere than four, mm-hmm. you know, just like um, nuts and bolts type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm super excited to be playing with him a bunch. Yeah, he's a good guy and he can play. He's, yeah, he's a great guy and he can yeah. play. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so just want to be doing more of that, you yeah. know, just more on the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to get out there, too. We're on the road. Yeah. All right, Breezy. Thank you for talking. Yeah, man. All right, that was Jamie Branch. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. Jamie's a really great person. She's a great musician, and uh, she's just a lot of fun to hang around with. If you want to find out more about Jamie, go to jamiebranch.com. She's got a lot of stuff coming up, and... uh, I, th- I think you'll be hearing a lot more from her in the coming years. She's a good one. Go to the 5049 website. Uh, dip in. Check out some past episodes. There's a lot up there, man. Dip in. Dip in. And that's it. Uh, like I said, we'll be back in two weeks. Until then, be excellent to each other. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.